Hi there, welcome to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Griffith, and I am so excited to have you here. On this podcast, we talk about all forms of neurodivergence, from ADHD to learning disorders to giftedness to autism and more. If any of that sounds familiar, welcome to Neurodivergent Magic. Hi there, Briar. How are you doing? I am so good, Megan. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. We have such like a fun, interesting topic that is definitely outside of my scope. So this is why I love having guests on the podcast so that we can uh, talk about everything, uh, even the stuff that I don't always experience firsthand. So for everybody listening, um, first, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, who you are and where they can follow you? Well, hello, y'all. I am Briar Harvey. I am the founder of the Neurodiversity Media Network, and we are a platform designed for accessibility. So we build master classes and then their video, audio with transcripts and captioning. And, you know, you can just kind of come and get the information in the way that you need it. We've got 25 plus masterclasses now. I just get to record podcasts every day is basically what happens. And you can find that at the neurodiversitymedianetwork.com. And you can find me at briarharvey.com. And today we're going to talk about drugs. Yay! I love it. I'm so excited. So specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, psychedelics and neurodivergence and how the two can sort of play off each other, how psychedelics can be really useful, um, all of that good stuff. So yeah, why don't you start with like maybe some basics about your experience with neurodivergence um and then we can move into the psychedelic side of things so i was diagnosed bipolar when i was 15 years old and i got put on a lot of drugs for that immediately and then more over the years um i was diagnosed with PTSD when I was 30 and CPTSD, I think around 35. And then uh, I was diagnosed autistic with ADHD last year. Now, I personally have had true manic experiences. So I still believe that my bipolar diagnosis is valid. I also know that the overlap of autistic women who were previously diagnosed with bipolar or borderline personality disorder is exceptionally high. And that's especially true if there's been no mania or even hypomania and those things have a tendency to not show up for autistic women because shockingly they're not actually bipolar 
that was very much my experience. I was diagnosed bipolar at 19. My manias were, my hypomanias were mild even for hypomania. And they were likely, what was really happening is I was stuck in a cycle of autistic burnout. And then I started to feel a little bit better. And so my ADHD took over and I did a million things, which looked like mild hypomania. And then I would crash and it looked like rapid cycling bipolar when it wasn't. (laughs) I have had experienced multiple times in my life, true mania. And I would not wish this experience on anyone, but when you're going through it, it is absolutely incredible. There is nothing like mania. It is not at all like burnout. And the difference is so pointed and clear to me, especially as I look back on some of my experiences now. When I was manic, I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I felt like I was invincible. Like those are not just stereotypical ideas of mania. That is what actually happens. Autistic burnout, on the other hand, you don't eat because you can't function. You don't sleep because your sleep hygiene is absolutely incredibly fucked. And you don't have that sense of being able to do anything. Instead, you're stuck doing nothing because you can't, like, leave that plane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would say like when I'm in sort of the up end of that cycle with the ADHD taking over, it's not the same as how mania is how you're mm-hmm. describing it at all. It's, I have a sense of like mild grandiosity, like could probably start three businesses. I could probably do like, I could probably do that, but it, there's always like the probably there. There's always the hint of like, this might be a bad idea. (laughs) And then I usually do it anyway because of ADHD impulsivity, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like with mania, that voice is quiet. Right. And there's a difference between starting three businesses because I got a lot of great ideas and feeling like I can save the world from all of its problems that I alone have the answers. And why isn't anybody talking to me about this? Yes. Yeah, that is different for sure. I'm so glad that you're speaking on this because like, I, I just struggled so long with, cause I was diagnosed with bipolar for five years. And then even after that, I wasn't diagnosed with autism and ADHD for another almost five years. So there was like a five-year gap where I was like, okay, bipolar isn't correct clearly because I don't have what you're describing, uh-huh. but something is going on. Uh-huh. And the similarities in the way autism and bipolar in particular manifest for women. I I mean, this is the part about mental health and neurodivergence that we don't talk a lot about. The DSM is a tool. There is no test for bipolar or autism, although There are physical indications of autism. Did you know that most autistic people have very tiny ear canals and that our tympanic 
uh, canal is a different shape and you can actually look at someone's who's autistic and look at their ears and potentially diagnose them that way. We're not that doing so any cool. of that. We're not doing any of that. And so when we're looking at the DSM, we're looking at a set of diagnostic standards and you may or may not meet any number of these standards. But because autism has for so long been defined by the traditional white male standard, like there is such a complete difference in diagnostic range. Not that, and I know you've talked about this, there is no female autism. That is, that is right. not a thing. <laughs> But the diagnostic standard was written from men. And that's the distinction, right? Mm -hmm. I would totally agree. I think the diagnostic standard is written to leave out women. So when women present differently, we're like, oh, this is like the women's version of autism. And that's like a logical leap to make. It's just an incorrect one, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And I think that the issue continues to be that modern medicine still does not really study women or people of color or trans folk in the way that our bodies and brains are functionally different. Mm. There's no standard of care when we haven't been thought of as a diagnostic baseline. Yeah, absolutely. We are still very much considered exceptions um, or outliers. And it's like, at least when it comes to like men versus women, like generally speaking, we make up about half the population. Like we are not outliers. Actually, 51% of the population. Well, there you go. <laughs> it takes us significantly longer to be diagnosed with even a general health issue, much less mental health issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that there were still medical textbooks as recent as a decade ago that insisted that Black people felt less pain. So yes. if that's the standard that we're operating on, then I'm going to say mm, the DSM may not know what the fuck it's talking about. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. I, I like how you phrased it before. It's a tool. It's a tool with many flaws, uh, but it, it can be useful to some degree. I don't know. That's how I like to think of it. You know, and while there are not currently medical treatments for autism, having a functionally correct diagnosis for ADHD, for bipolar, for most of these things can actually change your life. So it's worth pursuing correct diagnosis, even while you understand that the system is fucked. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I, that's been like flowing in my head a lot recently because I, there's a lot of people I follow who are very much like, you know, dismantle the DSM. It's useless. It's garbage. And, and I understand where they're coming from and I hear them. It's a broken system or it's a system that's working to oppress people, like uh -huh. however you want to view it. And 
I do think what you're saying about functional diagnosis and getting a like accurate perspective on what's happening and how you can treat it is so helpful. So I don't want to dismiss that by talking about the issues in the DSM. Both can exist. And I think this is really, really important for autistic folk because we tend to be so black and white either or about it. It is very important to learn to hold space for both and. Both things can be true. The DSM is terrible and functional diagnosis can change your life. And this is why I think it takes uh, people diagnosed with borderline so long to figure out that they are either also autistic or autistic instead of borderline, because a big treatment for borderline is dialectical behavioral therapy, the cornerstone of which is learning to hold two truths together. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is, you know, what a lot of autistic folks need. So we're like, oh, I must actually be borderline. The treatment's working. Uh, right. It's like, oh, no, this, you actually have black and white thinking for a whole other reason. So. One of my favorite bloggers, Eric Barker, once described uh, DBT as stoicism without the religion and CBT as Buddhism without Buddha. And I think both of those things are true. And I think there's a problem when you remove the religious aspects from the spiritual teaching and just try and call it therapy. But that is perhaps a different episode. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'll have you back. We'll talk about it. But yeah. So for this episode, let's dive on in to psychedelics. So tell me a little bit about, I don't know, like how you got started with psychedelics, how psychedelics have helped you wherever you want to start. Hit me. So I started psychedelics like any good child of the nineties at a rave with inappropriate boys and music and way too many drugs. However, it did begin kind of an experience for me in figuring out that there were alternative options. And I have been on so many pharmaceutical drugs for bipolar over the last, um, well, I'm 43 now. So a lot of years, like 25 years, I have been in and out of treatments of some variety. Pharmaceuticals did not work for me. They, they dulled me. They made me feel like half of a person. Uh, the antipsychotics in particular that they use to treat bipolar that I that they also use to treat epilepsy made me gain an incredible amount of weight that I am still trying to deal with those ramifications on my body and so at some point I was like okay well I'm if this isn't working what are my other options And we do not until, I mean, very recently, the conversation about psychedelics has been that it is bad, bad, bad. And I started three, it's been three years now, 2020, 
end of 2020, I started seeing my therapist who is certified in EMDR and IFS, which is eye movement, EMD, desensitization and reprogramming, and IFS, which is internal family systems. I had done therapy. I'd done CBT, I'd done DBT, and I had all of these trauma things, which by the way, I think there's an important distinction here that trauma can be healed from. Neurodivergence cannot. And while there is a similar set of tools, we can actually reprogram trauma from our brains and do work that allows it to be dealt with in very significant ways. So I started seeing my therapist for EMDR and IFS. And when we started, he said to me, I anticipate that you will graduate from therapy by the time that we are done here. That was not his exact words. Those are my words. But I was like, after 25 years, I'd really like to be done with therapy. I don't think I need this. I feel like I've been working on myself for decades now. And surely there must be an end point to this. Mm -hmm. And when we were done, his recommendation was microdosing psilocybin. He gave me a specific blend. He's like, here's where you can go and get it. I cannot prescribe this to you, but this is the treatment that I would recommend when you are having problems. Not all of the time, but here is a thing that you can do to help manage your mental health. Because especially in this country, mental health is something that is broken and then never fixed. We're always just in a state of disrepair rather than learning tools that allow us to regulate our nervous systems and then kind of move on about our lives. And I'm not saying it's always ever going to be perfect either, but there are baseline tools that we can use and psychedelics are one of those tools. So how would you say, you said the pharmaceuticals were not super duper effective for you, or they came with side effects that were so problematic. Um, how have psychedelics been different? Like, have they come with side effects as well? Or have they like, how have they been effective? So for me personally, I have not experienced any negative consequences with psychedelic usage, although it's really, really important to note, especially, especially if mania is actually present, that we can have some side effects here. And you should, this is a position of privilege, I recognize, but I don't recommend people explore psychedelics without supervision of some kind. You should have a medical practitioner who is at least aware of where you are and what you're going through so that if things aren't right, you have someone that you can check in with. And much like diagnosis, right? That's a real position of privilege to be able to say, hey, this matters. But in fact, it does matter. I recognize that most of us don't have these resources. And um, I will link you to 
uh, I follow a guy who wrote a book about, I think it's called Autism on Acid. And I just did his podcast. And so there are starting to become some resources available. But he's based out of Colorado, which has decriminalized psychedelics. So the degrees of legality here do matter if you would like to not be arrested for treating your mental health. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I recognize that it's definitely a privilege to be able to talk to your doctor and be open about this because there are some states where it's decriminalized, like Colorado. Um, I think that might be the only one. Um, And then there are some doctors who are like, okay, yes, this is illegal, but thank you for informing me and I will keep an eye on you. Um, And that tends to be the response to relatively small bodied white women. Um, Whereas if you're in a different body, that might not be the case for you. So, you know, obviously be careful, protect yourself, don't get arrested. But if you, I agree with you, I think it's really important to have supervision when you're, you know, anytime you're using a new medication, whether it's pharmaceutical or not, like, um, absolutely. So when you started the microdosing, what, like, how quickly did you notice a difference? What differences did you start to notice? So, I have been using, it's called um, a mini dose. It's very specifically psilocybin. And I take it, when I'm taking it, uh, a capsule every hmm, two, three, four days. Herbal medicine is shockingly kind of do whatever the fuck you want with it. And so... For me, there is definitely a heightened sense of emotional awareness. Something that I really have benefited from is feeling like my feelings are okay. And this is a big deal, I think, when you are autistic, because our feelings are what have gotten us in trouble for our entire lives. Our big feelings are what got us labeled as problems or what had us misunderstood or any potential conflict. I feel like I can look back at my life and go, oh yeah, it was because I was having big feelers that nobody was able to help me hold at that point in time. And so being able to sit with those feelings and examine them and go, oh yes, that is, that is a big feeling. Thank you. We can just set that aside now. Uh, A friend of mine talks about how what she likes to achieve is neutrality that when you are autistic the highs are really high and the lows are really low and so the baseline should actually just be boredom all of the time because that's the easiest place for us to judge actually what's really happening to us and psychedelics for me allowed me to set aside those feelings long enough to figure out what a baseline really truly was. Ooh. Okay. That is really interesting. 
I don't even know. Yeah. Baseline is very elusive for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So once you found like your baseline and everything, what were you able to do with that information? So for me, a lot of this has to do with trauma and mm-hmm. I hate bringing this story up to a pregnant lady. My third child was a full-term stillbirth. And it was an incredibly traumatic birth loss period. Mm -hmm. I have, it'll be nine years this year in October. And going through those anniversaries has always been very particularly difficult. And last year was the first time that it didn't end me, that the grief and the remembered physical trauma was not so overwhelming that I couldn't actually go about life. Now, I, as an entrepreneur, tend to take October off and have done this for the last several years, but I definitely have a greater sense of peace last year and the year before that. I was able to, you know, figure out what self-care looked like rather than just coping mechanisms. Ooh, okay. So how do you differentiate between self-care versus coping mechanisms? I think I got this from Molly Mayhar, who I love and adore as a coach, who talked about the difference between self-care and self-soothing, was that care was the things that we did for ourselves, whether we wanted to or not, And self-soothing is the activities that we do despite knowing that they are not in our best interest. Sometimes binging Netflix for two days really is self-care. But when we know that we should be doing other things and we feel like we should be doing other things, that's self-soothing. That's so interesting. So first of all, thank you for, you know, sharing that with us. And I know that's still a very like raw and vulnerable story and everything. So thank you. And it's totally okay to share that with me. Um, so yeah, I, I love, um, that you are finding something that's helping you exist as a person with these painful experiences that you've had. Cause I think that's kind of the goal with trauma, right? Like, right. I mean, the goal when we start trauma therapy for most of us is like, I really want to just go back and rewrite history and fix it. So it never happened. <laughs> then we start trauma therapy and we have to recognize, Oh, I can never do that. And that tends to lead to the pit of despair. Um, and then we find tools or treatments that work for us so that we can be a person who has experienced this horrible, horrible thing or things, um, and still be a person, you know, maybe a less functional person, maybe a less happy person, and that's fine, but still a person, you still exist. And that that's really, really powerful. 
And we don't get to determine what other people's trauma is or is not. If it is traumatic to you, then it's traumatic to you. But trauma lives in the body, very physically, somatically, trauma lives in the body. And that is something that we can redirect and remove from our bodies in a way that we cannot move or redirect our neurodivergence. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you feel that the psilocybin has helped you start to move some of this. Uh That's great. That's incredible, actually. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I have any other questions about the psychedelics specifically, unless is there something else that, you know, we haven't gotten to or talked about when it comes to psilocybin? Psilocybin in particular, no. I do want to mention that there are a number of classes of psychedelics here. So the differences between psilocybin and ketamine, for example, are pretty extreme. And ketamine is especially now becoming more popular as a treatment for trauma. So if you can't do psilocybin, perhaps ketamine is an avenue that you can explore. I think they even have online ketamine now, although again, I really encourage you to do these kinds of things with support, with someone who understands how brains work, so that if something happens to you, you can be supported through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we actually have a episode of this podcast that I'll go ahead and link in the show notes where, uh, yeah, I interview someone who has done ketamine treatments specifically to help with their borderline personality disorder. And they found it, you know, not, they didn't get rid of their mental illness, but it helps. So Yeah. And I think that's the bottom line. None of this stuff gets rid of mental illness. Autism can't be cured. Bipolar can't be cured. But there are available treatments that we really need to work at embracing more openly because there are things for us here. And the Legality makes that difficult, I think, for a lot of autistic folk because we are such black and white thinkers. It's bad, it's illegal, and I encourage you to talk to lots of people before you make that decision. Yes, yes, totally, totally. Um, Yeah, when it comes to the black and white thinking, I think that also tends to affect us when it comes to like treatment or life improvement skills or however you want to call it, because we're like, oh, well, it can't be cured. I can't get rid of it. So I might as well like not do anything, which we know is illogical, but like still feels profoundly true. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I love that you have found something that obviously didn't magically wave a magic wand and get rid of your trauma, but something that allows you to exist as a person through it. And yeah, I think that's Amazing. Um, so before we wrap up, a question I like to ask at the end is, uh, hello, hello, anybody who's zoned out, uh, welcome back. Uh, if someone's zoned out and they just want to catch like the Cliff Notes version, what is one thing you want people to walk away knowing? I will say it again because I've said it so many times. Maybe it'll sink in. Please don't 
explore alternative treatments alone. The reason this doesn't exist in a vacuum is because we exist in community. And for autistic people, that's hard. We don't make friends easily. We struggle being open with other people. And sometimes our medical team is the only support that we have. So regardless of how you go forward with these explorations, please make sure that there is at least one other person aware of what is going on with you and that you are doing or trying new things. Love that. Yes. Thank you. Okay. One more time. Where can people follow you and your business? Um, and then we will wrap things up. Well, I am Briar Harvey. You can find me at briarharvey.com. You can find the Neurodiversity Media Network at neurodiversitymedianetwork.com. We would love for you all to come and subscribe and join us and learn about all the new things. We try and make things fun and interesting over there. So I love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, your expertise and sharing your experiences and everybody else. I will talk to you next Saturday. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you give us a follow over on Spotify, leave a review over on Apple podcasts and tune in next Saturday for another amazing episode.